In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been out speaking about Christ in the streets. And they've been proclaiming that in Jesus Christ there is to be resurrection of the dead. And for doing that and for speaking in that way, they get seized on the streets by the authorities and they're put into jail. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law question them and listen to their answers. And after listening to them, they're a little bit amazed at what they're saying and they don't quite know how to handle it. And uh, as they're trying to handle things, they, um, they are talking back and they're quietly listening to what's going on. And the authorities then tell them they're going to let them go, but they order them to be very quiet when it comes to Jesus Christ. And they reply, according to verse 20, that we cannot help speaking of what we've seen and heard. In other words, they are going to talk about Christ, and they're going to continue to talk about Christ. And then they go to the people, the new believers in Christ, the new church that is just developing, the church of Christ, and they're going to report what's going on. When they report to the people, there's prayer, and it's an amazing prayer, and as you read through the book of Acts, you find the Christians praying in almost every chapter, but here we see what, what they're all about, and we can understand these are new Christians, these are new followers of Christ, and, and there's a depth to their prayer that is just amazing. I want to begin reading with verse 24, and read through verse 29 for you. When they heard this, the report of Peter and John, they raised their voices together in prayer to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and you made the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke about the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. And indeed, even Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and what your will decided beforehand. And now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. It's amazing when you hear these early Christians pray. It's amazing when you begin to understand who they are praying to. They really had a grasp of who they were praying to and how strong God was. In verse 24, they're praying to the Lord of creation. They're praying to the one who has made the heavens and the earth. They're praying to the one who has made the sea and everything in it. They're praying to the one, they say, who is sovereign and above all things. In verses 25 and 6, they're praying to the God, not only of creation, but they're praying to the God of revelation. They're praying to the God who, long before Jesus showed up on the scene, was predicted as the Messiah who would come and change everything. They're talking about how the rulers would rise up against him. And they understood that, but they were also praying and realizing that God revealed all that to them before it actually happened. And then when you get to verses 27 and 28, they're praying to the God of history who carried out his plan of salvation and used even people like Herod and Pilate to put it all together so that you and I could have forgiveness of sin in the person of Jesus Christ. 
When you read this prayer quietly and when you read it alone, you really get impressed with who God is and who he was and what he could do and how all things are in his hands and how much we need to learn and figure out how to really trust him and put ourselves in his hands. And then you notice how they pray as you go through this prayer too. They did not ask for protection. They did not ask to be kept from martyrdom. They didn't ask for their church to be recognized, and they didn't ask for their reputations to be preserved, nor did they pray that the church would gain status and that, um, and that their, their church would just have a tremendous reputation throughout all the earth. No, they were praying that they would be able, it says in verse 29, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and lift up the power and the majesty and the glory of of the Lord. And whatever that took, if it took their lives, they said, God, we're yours. If it took their, their, their whole life in terms of where it was going and what it was going to be, they said, God, that's all right. We put ourselves in your hands. They were very special people, but they were also very special people in the faith because they trusted their God and they leave us a lot of mentoring and reputation for us to follow. They walk by faith. Dr. Edmund is a man of um, strong stature, and down through the years, he's had a real influence on the Christian church. He was a missionary statesman. He's been the author of many books, and for a long period of time, he was the president of Wheaton College. And one year about this time, maybe more like the first week of May, when he was speaking in the chapel service at Wheaton, he was talking to the students because they were going to be going out for the summer, but he was talking particularly to the seniors. Because he said, now they're going to be going out into the real world. And he said, when you get out into the real world, you're going to have jobs and you're going to have bills and you're going to have frustrations and you're going to have all the things that all those who are out in that real world have coming into their lives. There's going to be tension there sometimes. There's going to be shortfalls there sometimes. There's going to be disappointments from time to time. So when you get back to that world and when the tensions come, being a Christian, you're going to cry out to God and you're going to pray and you're going to ask God for a lot of stuff. But he said, I want you to remember just four words when you pray. Over and over again, I want you to remember something that can have a positive effect on your prayer experience. He said, when you get out in that world, don't forget these four words. It's never not how, but always who. Not how, but who. As I was preaching a couple months ago, that phrase came to me, and I threw it out to you in a, in a short message. And I thought I would come back and deal with it in a longer form today. Dr. Edmund went on to say that most Christians, when they pray, get bogged down with how God answers prayer. They give God something to handle. They give God something to deal with. They give God something to work with. And as soon as they give it to him, then they start figuring out, how is this going to work? How is this going to happen? How can God possibly do this? And they give it to him, and when they give it to him, they get off their knees and they begin to pray, and when they pray... They ask God to do all this, and then they get up, pick up the phone, and call someone else and tell them about their problem, too, and say, how would you handle it? And he says, don't get into that. Begin to realize how strong God is. Get to see how powerful God is. Put yourself in his hands and let him do what he wants to do in his timing and in his way. He's not only going to answer your question. He's not only going to deal with your problem, but he's going to deal with you. 
He's going to show you some things. He's going to work in your life. He's going to draw you closer to himself. And when God does all those things, it's going to be very important for you to just realize that it's never a question of how is he working, how is he dealing with this issue. It's always a matter of who he is, the all-powerful God. Leave yourself in his hands. So I want to go through several illustrations of this in the scriptures, and I want to begin with Exodus chapter 14. And if you've got your Bibles this morning, turn with me as we look at some familiar passages and see how God works. In Exodus 14, the tribes of Israel are leaving Egypt. It's a story you've heard from your Sunday school days. They're arriving on the shores of the Red Sea. They're being followed and challenged by Pharaoh's army. They're about to be recaptured as they get to the sea, and then if they're recaptured, they're going to be taken back to slavery. And as you can imagine, at that point, they cry out to the Lord for his help, but they're also complaining to Moses about how things are and what the situation is like. And Moses finally gets tired of them and gets tired of all their complaining and their lack of trust. And he begins to cry out to God. And in chapter 14, beginning with verse 13, this is what Moses begins to say to the people. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord is going to bring you today. The Egyptians you see behind you today, you're never going to see again. And then here's a phrase that's very, very important for all of God's followers and one that probably ought to be underlined in your Bible. He goes on to say, the Lord today is going to fight for you and you need only to be still. How was God going to fight for them? Moses had no idea. The people didn't have a clue. They were all upset. They didn't know what God would do. They didn't even think about what God could do. But Moses, he knew what God could do, and he had to trust the Lord, and he had to obey him. And in verse 16, he obeyed everything God said. And one of the things God said was, you're at that sea now, Moses. Let's stretch your arm out over the sea. And he did that. And when God was with them, he did some very special things. There was a pillar of cloud that came behind them and protected them from the Egyptians. And then as Moses continued in faith, notice verse 21, as he stretched out his hand over the sea, he did it all that night, and the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned the bottom of the sea into dry ground. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, and a wall of water was on their right, and a wall of water was on their left. How was God going to get them over that sea? Who would have thought God would use the wind? That's how he divided those waters. Who would have thought that that's how God would work? I'm sure the people never thought of that. They were frustrated about everything else going on in their lives. And I'm sure Moses, even though he was their leader, I'm sure he didn't even know that. He didn't even think that God would use the wind to protect these people and get them across that sea. But that's how God did it. And long centuries after that, there was a psalmist who was writing one of the psalms that you and I really enjoy. It's Psalm 148. And he couldn't forget how God worked. 
And he couldn't forget how God intervened at such a crucial time and did what only God can do and what you and I can't do. And so he writes in 148, verse 8, about that stormy wind that fulfilled the word of the Lord. And perhaps as he was writing that, he was thinking about the way God had helped his people, and he was thinking about how God handled his people and worked with his people and did what only God can do. And maybe even remembering it's not how, but it's who. I want you to turn over to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11 is our next illustration. When we get to Numbers 11, the people are now in the desert, and they don't like being in the desert, and they're complaining mostly about the desert conditions and the desert food. God was feeding them every day. God was giving them what was called manna. And if you do a study on manna, you'll find out that manna had the ingredients in it that was the best possible food for people who were in desert conditions. But there was some humility to just eating manna, and there was some, some sameness to it, eating it day after day and after day, and they didn't like it, and they kept crying out to God, and they kept complaining because they wanted meat. So often we just complain so much to God instead of trusting him. And that's exactly what they were doing. And when you get into Numbers 11, notice verse 10, because it says, Moses heard all the people and heard every family wailing, each at the entrance of his tent. And the Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? And what have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Moses is saying, did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to the forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us some meat to eat. They were sick of that manna. And I, Moses says, cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is just too heavy. They didn't want the manna. Moses was distraught. He's crying out to God. And in response, God instructed Moses to then choose 70 elders to help him listen to the people and work with the people. And so when you get down to verse 18, this is what it says. God told Moses, go back and tell the people, consecrate yourself in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat some meat. And the Lord has heard you wail. And the Lord has heard you when you said, if we only had meat to eat. And he's heard you when you said we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord is going to give you meat and you will eat it. And it is amazing how God is going to work all through this and show them. Look at verse 23. It says, the Lord answered Moses and the, Lord, and the Lord says to Moses, is my arm too short? And he's saying to Moses, you're not going to see whether or not I can do what I said I could do. In this instance, Moses was having even a little bit of a struggle. And he was asking the how. He's crying out to God. He's praying to God. He's putting his trust in God. He's asking God to help him in this special way. And God comes back and God says, I'm going to give you meat. 
and I'm going to meet that need. I hear you wailing out in that desert, and I'm going to meet that need that you have. And go back to verse 21, and you got Moses even for a short time saying, God, here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you're saying I'm going to give you meat to eat for a whole month. He's basically saying, God, how are you going to do that? Would they have enough meat if we killed all of the flocks and all the herds that we've had? Would they have enough meat if we got all the fish in the sea, they were caught, and we would start to eat them? And it's then when the Lord comes back and says, Listen, Moses, is my arm too short? And how was the prayer answered? Notice verse 31. It says, A wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp about three feet above the ground. All that day and all that night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail, and no one gathered less than ten homers, and then they spread them out all around the camp. How did God answer their need? God brought in quail. And he used, again, it says, the wind to bring in those quail. And they were brought in about three feet above the ground. So the people, when they went to get them, they didn't even have to bend over for them. They were right there. They just collected them. And they had all the meat they could possibly want for the days ahead. When you get into the passage, you find out they had meat for the next day, the next day, the next day. They had meat for a month. And God said, when I give you meat, you're going to have meat. And they gave them meat till they got tired of it. And it said it was even coming out of their nostrils. God's got a sense of humor. He gave them meat till they got disgusted with it and they didn't even want it anymore. Notice in verses 31 and 32 what it says. It says, the wind came, the quail came in, and they had meat all that day and all that night, and the next day, and the people were, went out and they gathered that quail, and it says they had it constantly for the next month or more till they got sick of it. The Lord caused a wind to blow, and by God's quiet intervention, he met all of their needs and he was never poor for meeting their needs. And again, the lesson is not how. It's who. It's who. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. And now we're moving over to David and David's experience. He's going through a very tough time. This is a dreadful time for David. It's a time of distress. It's a time of great danger. He's been out to battle. He's been away from his camp. He's got all of his army with him. And in his absence, the camp at Ziglag has been invaded by the enemy, and they've come in and taken all of their stuff, all of their supplies, but they've also taken all of their wives and all of their children. Now, the Amalekites carried away all of those women and children, and so you can imagine what the anguish of the men would be in David's army out there somewhere where they were at battle. Notice verse 4. It says, So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. And then the account says in verse 6, 
David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him, and each one was bitter in his spirit because of his sons and his daughters. They knew that they were now missing. It was just a terrible experience for David, but also for, their, for his whole army to realize their wives were gone, their children were gone, not only were their supplies gone, but everything that was very, very precious to them was gone. But then notice what David did at the end of verse 6. It says, David found his strength in the Lord his God. There were others who were saying, David, come on, get your act together. Come on, let's figure this thing out. Let's pursue this enemy. Let's figure out how we're going to get all this back. Don't spend time, David, in prayer and meditation. Let's get out there and let's remedy the situation. you got to do something, but not Dave. David says he's going to find his strength in his direction and his power in the Lord our God. He's going to put himself in God's hands. And he's not going to look to himself or to anyone else. He's going to put himself in the hands of Almighty God. He didn't understand a whole lot at this point, but he was going to turn to the one he knew he could trust and the one who had all power. And he was going to ask that one to guide him. And you'll notice that in verse 8. He turns to God and he says, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? And God gives him an answer. God says, Pursue them and you will certainly overtake them and you will succeed in the rescue. How is he going to find the enemy? He didn't even know where the enemy was. He didn't even know where they went after they went into his, his camp. So he prays about that and he commits all of that to the Lord. And what happens is one of the enemy's slaves, one of the soldiers who had a, had a slave who took care of the forces and worked for them, got sick and they didn't wait for him. They just left him at the side of the road. David's men found him. And David's men nursed him back to health. And that young man knew all of the plans of the enemy. And he took them and he led them to the soldiers. And when David and his men got to them, they were able to hit them with a surprise attack. And they got back everything, everything they, they needed. Notice verse 11. They found this Egyptian in a field and they brought him to David. And they gave him water to drink and food to drink, and he led them to the enemy. But then also go down to verse 18, where it says, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including their wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else that had taken. David brought everything back. Again, the story is not how, but who? David put himself in the hands of God. David trusted God. David had no idea how it could work, but he knew he was overwhelmed. He knew it was beyond him. He knew it was something he couldn't put together. So he cried out to his God, and he trusted his God. And even though everybody else was saying, David, you got to do this. David, you got to do that. David, you got you to get your act together, and, and, and you've got to, you got to figure things out. He says, no, I'm going to God, and I'm going to put myself in God's hands. Now turn with me to one New Testament illustration, Acts 27 and, and Acts 28. When we go over there, we're going to see Paul in action. And Paul believed that God wanted him to go to Rome. 
That's recorded in Acts 19. It's also recorded in Romans 1 and Romans 15. It's recorded over and over again where God says to Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome. The last time that it's said in the book of Acts is in Acts 23, and the words are these, For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must, Paul, also bear witness of me in Rome. But there were obstacles. Paul was a prisoner. And there were obstacles he didn't know about because there was a group that wanted to get into that prison and get their hands on Paul and kill him. And there was a young man working in the prison and he heard about the rumor and heard about what was going to go on. And he went to the authorities and the authorities took care of that and saved Paul's life. But then after that experience, Paul was kept in Caesarea for two years even though there was no charge against him. And Paul is sitting in that prison in Caesarea for two years, and he's wondering what is going on and what is going to happen, but he knows God said Rome, so he's just planning on getting to Rome in God's time and God's way. Finally, Paul is sent to the capital city, and he's sent on a ship with a lot of other prisoners, and it's not a dream trip at all, but he was going to Rome, and he knew he was going to get there. When they got out on the sea in that ship, it was a tremendous storm that came up, and you remember probably the story well, and all hope was gone that any life could be saved. But in chapter 27, notice in verse 28, Paul stands up to talk to all these prisoners and all those who were in charge on the ship, and he says, keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it's going to happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we're going to run aground on some island. Paul is going to Rome. Paul knows he's going to Rome. Paul knows that's where God wants him to be. Paul's trust is in Almighty God. And even though everything is going wrong, and even though they're in a tremendous storm, and even though everybody on that ship is afraid, Paul says, come on, guys, we got to have courage. God told me I'm going to Rome, and I want you to know we're going to get to Rome, but we're also going to have to get on land somewhere, and we're going to be there for a period of time before we get to Rome. There were dangers and there were obstacles that Paul didn't even know about. They finally got off the ship, and they finally hung on to boards and anything they could get their hands on, and every one of those prisoners and every one of those who were driving that ship eventually got to Malta, to this island, as they were going day by day, trusting God. When they got on the island, they started to build a fire for warmth and to be able to cook something so they could eat. And when Paul reached down and picked up what he thought was a stick, it turned out to be a poisonous snake, and they all expected him to swell up, they all expected him to get sick and to die, but nothing, it says, happened to him. God protected him in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 28. And in God's time and in God's way, notice 28 verse 16, it says, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier guarding him each day. Throughout that long experience, the problems all had to be handled by God. 
And Paul had to believe that. And Paul did believe that. And he had to trust that God, even though he couldn't see it for a great period of time, he had to see and trust that God was working on his behalf. And eventually, when you get to verses 5 and 6, and down to verse 16 of 28, you see that God finally got Paul to Rome. That's the way it is. Because the Almighty is able to do, as it says in Ephesians 3.20, exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that's going to work within us. What's our task? Our task is to wholly trust our Lord. Our task is to trust the Lord no matter what's going on in our lives. Our task is to trust him so that we trust not only that he can answer this prayer, but we can trust his timing. We can trust what he's going to do with other people as he's working in, in behalf of our need in what's going on in our lives. There are times when he's going to work with us, and he's going to draw us closer to himself. There are times when he's going to be doing a variety of things as he, as he works out the answer to our prayer and as he begins to direct our lives. And as he begins to answer these prayers and begins to direct us in the direction that is going to be best for us, our part is simply to trust him. Our part is to talk to him. Our part is to open up to him. Our part is sometimes even to complain to him maybe or share our hurt or share our frustration or cry out to him and tell him, how come things aren't going like this? But then obey him and trust him. And then stand what he's told us over and over again. We need to stand in a world like ours, the trial of faith. And have confidence because he said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, so that you and I may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. He's going to be true to that. Because more than anything else, more than fulfilling any wish we have or any desire we have, he wants to come into our lives and show us his grace and reveal to us how he cares about us and how he loves us. He's going to take the time to show us what strength he has. He's going to take the time to give us hope even in the midst of a struggle. He's going to help us to show we may get up by, by distress, but we're never completely defeated because he's going through the struggle with us, and he's going to be everything we ever need in an uncertain world like ours. Many times someone will come in and talk with me and share with me, and we will pray together and when they leave, I just wonder how God is going to work. I can't figure it out. I can't see the possibility. I can't see how things are going to come together, how things are going to work. I can't see all the people God's going to touch in the process. And I can't understand sometimes how God in his very unique way, and he works with everybody in an individual way, in a different way, how God is going to move and minister to those people if they will just wait and just trust and realize it's never how, but it's who we're praying to and what he can do and what he can be. I trust you'll learn that and depend on that. As you remember those simple four words, it's not how, but it's always who. Let's pray. 
Our Father and our God, we do believe, but we fall short of what we ought to believe. We do trust, but then, God, we don't only trust you, we trust all kinds of other sources. And our God, we sometimes appear to be so strong, but we are so very weak because our faith is in ourselves and our faith is in what we can do or what we can see or what we can put together rather than in who you are. So God, I would ask you to nudge all of us today, nudge us into more faith, nudge us into understanding we can trust you, we can put ourselves right into your hands and we can depend on you and you're a God who's going to work mysteriously and you're a God who's going to be doing many more things than we realize. You're a God who's going to be touching our own lives in certain ways. You're going to be touching those around us in certain ways. But you're going to work and you're going to get us to where you want us to be. Help us to be open to that. Help us to allow you to work. Help us to have the faith to trust you so that it's not always how on our part, but by faith who, because then we will also have your peace and know your love in a very special way. In Jesus' name, amen.